How's everybody doing? Good morning so far. Glad to see me. I'm glad to see you. It's good. Glad to have you guys here. Yeah, Paul's right. It's just, you know, I was uh, walking from my car to the, uh, to the church this morning, and it's just so beautiful out. I'm looking forward to taking a walk uh, this afternoon. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Clay. I'm one of the pastors here. I usually hang out up front after the service. Come on up and say hi. I'd love to meet you, get to know you, maybe answer any questions that you might have about Renaissance or anything else uh, that I can help you with. So, uh, as Paul mentioned, we're starting a new series that we're calling Unknown God, and it's, it's, uh, we're looking at a passage in the book of Acts where the Apostle Paul uh, was interacting with a group of Athenian intellectuals, and we're going to get to that in a minute. But to kind of dive in and get us going with that, I want to go back about 20 years uh, ago to the time when Alanis Morissette released her song, Ironic, which then moved, I think it was, ended up at like number four on the charts for a, for a long period of time. I want to read just a, a couple of sections from that. Uh, she starts off, she says, an old man turned 98. He won the lottery and died the next day. It's a black fly in your Chardonnay. It's a death row pardon two minutes too late. Isn't it ironic, don't you think? It's like rain on your wedding day. It's a free ride when you've already paid. It's the good advice that you just didn't take. And then she goes on and she kind of recites, she works her way through a, a bunch of things that, that range from minor inconveniences to serious tragedies, like the guy who has been afraid to fly on a plane his entire life and he finally gets on an airplane and then the thing crashes and it's, as it's going down, he just looks out the window and he's like, it's ironic and you know, this is what's gonna happen to me the first time that I fly on an airplane. You know, and it's dark humor. Uh, but what attracts so many people to that song is that it's a dark humor way of looking at the realities of our lives. And hopefully most of us don't go through those kinds of tragedies, but we do deal with many of the minor annoyances, rain on a wedding day or a fly in, you know, in the food that we're trying to eat. And what it does is it helps us to look at life and the frustrations and the challenges that we feel and it lets us know that there's somebody else out there who actually understands what it's like to live life in this frustrating, sometimes annoying, very broken world. And so it was popular because people could relate to it. It was also popular because English teachers all over the country use it as an example of what irony actually is not, because there's really no irony uh, in that song. And Alanis Morissette recently updated the song uh, just this past fall, and she sang it as a uh, duet with James Corden on The Late Late Show, and she used uh, more current cultural references. So I want to take a look at a little piece of that for a minute here. An old friend sends you a Facebook request. You only find out they're racist after you accept. There's free office cake on the first day of your diet. It's like they announce a new iPhone the day after you buy it. Isn't it ironic? I know I am 
So there you go. You know, we can relate to, uh, to those different, different aspects of the things that she's talking about. And, and think about the songs. Think about the songs in our culture that we love. They're songs that make us laugh. You know, they, they give us a break from the pain of the world, and they just make us laugh, sometimes laugh at ourselves. They're songs that make us cry because then we know that there's somebody out there who feels what we feel. They express our anger. They express our frustration. They help us to forget our troubles. Our songs express, in some sense, who we are, and they express how, uh, what we feel and, and, and what we long for. Our songs essentially express the felt needs that we have, and the singers, the artists are singing, in a sense, both to us, but also for us. And that's why we can relate to those songs in our, in our current culture. And in Acts chapter 17, the passage that we're going to be looking at, we've actually, this, this spring, this winter and spring, we've been looking at a number of different passages in the book of Acts. Acts is a book of history of the early Christian church written by a historian named Luke. And he kind of traces from uh, right after Jesus' resurrection all the way up through uh, roughly just before 70 AD, the first 30, 40 years or so of the early Christian church. And in this particular scene that we're going to be looking at, the Apostle Paul, one of the obviously the leaders of the early Christian church, has been traveling around the Roman Empire telling people out about Jesus. And he arrives in Rome, I'm sorry, he arrives in Athens, and he's waiting there for his companions to arrive so that he can join them and they can continue on in their journey. And I want to pick up the action shortly after he's arrived in Athens. Luke writes, he says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And you got to picture this. Paul was a devout Jew, right? He was well-educated in everything to do with Judaism. He was a Pharisee. He's one of the most devout, intense of the Jews that there had ever been. And he had actually gone around for a period of time persecuting Christians, actually having Christians thrown into prison and wanting them to even be executed because he was so devout in his Judaism that he objected to Jews who began following after Jesus as their Messiah. But he had this really amazing conversion experience a little bit earlier in the book of Acts where he had a vision of Jesus and Jesus spoke to him and said, Paul, I am going to use you to tell the world about me. So here he is in Athens. He's a Jew who believes from his earliest days that there is only one true God. And he sees a city that's full of idols, full of these false pagan gods. And his spirit is really upset within him. But instead of kind of going postal like we might expect him to do, watch what he does in the next verse. It says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. So think about this. Paul is a devout Jew, but he's also a Roman citizen, and he's got the equivalent of of an Ivy League education. So he is equally well-equipped to reason with Jews in the synagogue and Greek intellectuals in the marketplace. He's equally comfortable in both of those cultures. And if you watch what he does, when he interacts with Jews in the synagogue, he interacts with them in one specific way. When he interacts with Greeks in the marketplace, he interacts with them in a very different way. He has the same message, but he tailors it to the audience, to the people 
with whom he's interacting. And we think of a marketplace, we think of like a shopping center, but that's not what at all what it was in Athens. In, in the Roman Empire, you had these two main centers of culture, Rome and Athens. And in the center of Athens was this marketplace, and the marketplace was where people would go to get their news. It was where uh, art was performed. It's where people discussed different ideas. It's where they argued back and forth. It's where culture was created, where culture was formed. It's where everything was disseminated. So what Paul is doing is he's essentially going right into the cultural hub of the, of the Greco-Roman Roman culture of his day, and he's dealing with the most intellectual people that he could possibly deal with there. Luke goes on, he says, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. And some, some of them asked, what's this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. You got to watch what they're doing here. They're saying, what is this babbler saying? And they're using a, a Greek word that they would use of like little birds that go around pecking and picking up seeds from the ground. And they're saying, this guy's a seed picker. You know, he picks up little bits and pieces of information, little quotes, and he, and he throws them out on Twitter and on Facebook so that people kind of think that he's really an intellectual. But we, we're the intellectual elites, and we know that this guy's he's just a poser. He doesn't really know what he's talking about. He wants to sound important, but he's not really on our level. And so they say, hey, let's bring him, in verse 19, to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, can we know more about this strange teaching, this new teaching that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to, your, to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. The Areopagus is, is the, the advisory council of the city of Athens. These are the people who made the major decisions in terms of the ethical, in terms of the moral, in terms of the religious, in terms of the cultural aspects of the group, of, of the people of Athens. So they bring Paul into them and they say, hey, let's talk. Let's find out more about what you're saying here. Because some of them thought he was a seed picker, but others are saying, mm, maybe he's got something there. Because the Athenians love to discuss uh, religion. They love to discuss philosophy. They love to discuss culture. So they were intrigued by what Paul had to say. So verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and I looked carefully at your object of worships, worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship and this is what I'm gonna, what I'm gonna proclaim to you. Watch what he does, right? Paul is a, is, a, is a follower of Jesus. He has given over his whole life to telling people about Jesus. Most of the time up until then, he had been doing it into the, in the synagogue with Jews, Jews who had a background in the Hebrew scriptures, Jews whom he was trying to convince that Jesus was their Messiah, that he was their savior, that he was the one whom God had sent to deliver them, not so much from Roman domination, but ultimately to the, the, the bondage that they were in to sin and, and the challenges that they were facing in their lives. But here he finds himself in the center of Greek culture. And it's interesting to note, he doesn't quote any Hebrew scriptures. He doesn't quote what we would refer to as the Old Testament. What he does is he looks around in their culture 
and he sees all these idols, and then he notices that over on the side, there's this one altar that's got this inscription that says, to an unknown God. And he says, he says to them, I'm going to be proclaiming to you. I'm going to tell you about this unknown God, this God whom you instinctively know is out there, but you don't know who he is or what he's done or how you, how you ought to be able to, to relate to them, to relate to him. I mean, essentially what they've got is this kind of a wild card altar out there. They're hedging their bets. They're saying, we've got all these hundreds of different gods, but maybe we've missed one. And we want to make sure that we're in, in good standing with that God, just in case we've missed him. And sometimes we do that in our culture as well, right? There are people who go to church just on Christmas and Easter because they feel like, okay, at least if I go on those, those most important holidays, maybe God will be okay with me. Or sometimes people will pray the same prayer every day. It's kind of a, a rote prayer that they pray, not really understanding the words, not really meaning what they're saying. But we do that because we figure, okay, if we do that, maybe I'll be okay with God. And that's what these people were trying to do. And Paul is saying to them, hey, I want to talk to you about this God. So he catches this piece of their culture and he uses it as a jumping off point to tell them about the one true God whom he worships. He says in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he doesn't live in temples built by human hands. He's beginning to make a contrast between the one true God and their gods. Our God, my God, Paul is saying, he's the one that created the world and everything that's in it. He doesn't live in temples made by human hands. Verse 25, he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives life and breath and everything else. And God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him because he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So again, watch this situation here. He's talking to a bunch of Greek intellectuals. If he quotes the Hebrew scriptures, if he quotes what we refer to as the Old Testament, they're not going to be able to relate to it because many of them had never read it. They weren't familiar with it. They didn't grow up with, him, with it. It's not part of their culture. So he looks around. He sees this altar to an unknown God. He starts with that, but then he moves to their poets, to the people who expressed the culture of that day, the thinking, the philosophy, the ideas of that day in the language of that day. And he quotes this Greek poet, Aratus, who says, we are his offspring. And, and, and in the poem, Aratus is talking about Zeus, the, the, in a sense, the God who is in charge of the pantheon, the biggest, most important, most powerful God that they would have had. And Paul is, in a sense, contrasting Zeus with the one true God. He hasn't named him. He hasn't said a lot about him except that he's the creator of everything. He's the provider of everything. And the Greeks were saying, Aratus and, and the people to whom Paul was speaking were saying, we are the offspring of Zeus. And Paul picks up on that and he says, yeah, close. You got the offspring idea okay, but you're missing the point. We're not the offspring of Zeus. We're the children of the God who created the universe. You feel like you've got this connection with Zeus. And yeah, you're right, there's, there's a connection with a God, but not with that God. There's a connection with the God who created you. 
the God who provides everything that you need. Now, if he were talking to Jews, he might talk about us being created in the image of God. But he's not talking to Jews. He's talking to Greeks. So he makes that connection there in a way that the Greeks would understand. And he says, let me tell you about this unknown God, this God whom you instinctively know is out there. I want to tell you about him because he's the one. He's the one whom you need to know. He is ultimately your father. He's your provider. He's your sustainer. And he's the one who you really ought to want to have a relationship with. So the Greeks had their poets, and their poets expressed their philosophy. They expressed their religion. They expressed what was going on in their culture. We've got the same thing in our culture, too. One of, one of the most popular poets uh, of, of the last 40 years or so in, in Western history is a guy named Sir Paul David Hewson. Most of us probably know him as Bono. We don't think of Bono as a poet, but he actually is a, is a poet. One of Bono's best-known poems is about our search as human beings for something that's bigger than ourselves, something that we can't quite find. And he sings it in the U2 song, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. He says, I've climbed the highest mountains. I've run through fields only to be with you. I've run, I've crawled, I've scaled the city walls only to be with you, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I mean, think about it this way. Music is, in some sense, the emotional currency of our culture. It's the way in which we express our deepest longings, whether it's Alanis Morissette singing, using her dark humor to, you know, to sing about annoyances, minor annoyances that we find, or serious tragedies that we run into, whether it's Bono talking about our unfulfilled longings and desires, whether it's Taylor Swift whining about her latest breakup with her latest you know, boyfriend. We relate to those songs because they speak about the experiences that we have. Our poets essentially are our songwriters. They're our musicians. They express our hopes and our dreams, our fears, our regrets, our longings, our desires. And we listen to them because they speak to us and they speak for us. And sometimes, sometimes, they actually point us to something beyond ourselves. Not always. They're usually really good at asking questions. They're usually really good at expressing frustration. They're not always so good at giving us answers to the questions we're asking, but sometimes they do. And if you, if you read through, if you work your way through the lyrics of Bono's song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, you find that he actually does hint that maybe he has found it or he's on his way to finding it. And then recently I was reading an interview that Bono had given a number of years ago and you realize he absolutely did find and he has found what he's looking for. And what Bono says in terms of what he's found is actually very consistent with what the Apostle Paul was saying to the people of Athens about this unknown God whom they, in some sense, we're looking for. I want to read an extended quote from an interview uh, that Bono gave. He said, it's a mind-blowing concept that the God who created the universe might be looking for company, a real relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. 
You see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And yet along comes this idea called grace to upend all that as you reap, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason, it defies logic. Love interrupts the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to be my final judge. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am, and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. I love the idea of the sacrificial lamb. I love the idea that God says, look, you Cretans, there are certain results to the way we are, to selfishness, and there's a mortality as part of your very sinful nature. And let's face it, you're not living a very good life, are you? There are consequences to our actions. The point of the death of Christ is that Christ took on the sins of the world so that what we put out did not come back to us and that our sinful nature does not reap the obvious death. That's the point. It should keep us humbled. It's not our own good works that get us through the gates of heaven. That's not bad for a guitar-playing Irish poet, you know? And watch what Bono is doing. He's doing the exact same thing that the Apostle Paul was doing. Paul goes into the culture in Athens. He sees this altar. He realizes that it's expressing something that the people are looking for, a longing, something that they're missing. They don't know what it is, and they certainly haven't found it yet. So he goes in there and he says, hey, you know what? I know this God who you're looking for. And in fact, your own poets have an instinctive understanding of who he is. What does Bono do? He takes this theme, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And when you read the song, when you listen to the song, at first it kind of seems like he, he's looking for, you know, for a lover, for a friend. But if you dig deeper into it, you wonder, is that all he's looking for? Is he looking for something bigger? And he's saying, we still haven't found that. So he takes those longings, those felt needs of our culture, and he expresses them in a way that 40 years later, we still love that song. And then you find out that Bono is a follower of Jesus. And you look back and you say, that's what he's writing about in that song. He's saying that that longing that we have as 20th, 21st century now, Western civilization human beings, that longing that we have, that thing that we're looking for that we can't really express, that we don't fully understand is is. Uh, what Pascal, the philosopher, called a God-shaped hole in every one of us. But Bono expresses it in a very different way than you'd expect to hear in church. Paul expressed the truth about the one true God in a very different way in Athens than he would have done if he were in a Jewish synagogue. So in Acts 17, Paul is saying to the Athenians, you're looking for this God. And he goes on and he says... He starts talking about this God and he says, this God is the God who created you. This God is the God who provided everything that you need. Now, if he were talking to Jews in the synagogue, 
He'd be reading from Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, the story of God creating the world, the story of God putting Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, giving them all the fruit, all the food, everything that they could possibly need in a perfect environment. But to the Greeks, that wouldn't make sense because they're not familiar with it. To the Jews, yes, but not necessarily to the Greeks. So what he just says to the Greeks is, you're looking for this God. The God that you're looking for is your creator. The God you're looking for is the one who's provided for you. The God you're looking for is the one who wants you to be his children, who wants you to have that relationship with him. And then he moves on, and he begins to introduce the concept of Jesus. He begins to talk about Jesus. He doesn't actually speak about him by name, as far as we can tell. He says that God has sent this man and this man died, and this man was resurrected by God. And when he gets to the resurrection, they interrupt him. They don't let him finish what he's saying. Because you see, the Greeks don't like this idea of resurrection. They don't have a category for bodily resurrection in their philosophy. But Paul has to introduce this because it's the center, it's the core, it's the key point of the message that he's proclaiming to them. So he's certainly willing to introduce new concepts to them, but he's building it on a foundation that they can understand. So verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. He didn't get to finish. He didn't get to tell them everything that he wanted to tell them because the idea that God would raise somebody from the dead was objectionable to so many of the people in that day. But there were some who wanted to hear more. There were some who said, yeah, we want to hear more about this. We don't necessarily believe it. We're skeptical, but something's going on. You're touching something in our hearts, something in our minds. So we want to hear more about this. And later on, he had more opportunity to speak with them. And Luke writes, he says, some of the people actually became followers of Paul and believed. And among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. It's so interesting to see this, this one guy, Dionysius. He's a member of the Areopagus. He is one of the intellectual elites of that day. And God had worked in his heart to convince him of the truth of who God is, of who Jesus was, and what, Je and, and what Jesus had done for him, because God had worked in his heart. And then Interestingly, Paul mentions this woman, Damaris. That's not going to necessarily happen in those days. Today, we're like, what's the big deal about mentioning a woman? In those days, really big deal. He's showing that the message about Jesus is for the intellectual elites. It's for men. It's for women. It's for everyone. Sometimes he's speaking in the synagogue. Sometimes he's speaking in the Athenian cultural center. Sometimes he's speaking wherever he might be. And that message is for all of us who will turn to Christ and look to him to meet those needs that are expressed in some sense by our poets, by our musicians, by our songs, by our hearts. And so ask yourself this question, how about you? Where are you in this, in this area? How are you responding to the message of Jesus? A lot of people a lot of people love the inspirational teaching of Jesus. Sermon on the Mount, uh, love your neighbor as yourself, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We love the inspirational teaching of Jesus, but when we get to the part about his death, his death on the cross, what Bono was talking about, this idea of, of karma and how it doesn't solve our problems, how it's insufficient 
for us and how we need the grace of God. And we get to the death and we get to the resurrection of Jesus. We get a little problem with that. We'll take the inspirational teaching, but we don't like all this death and resurrection idea. If that's where you are, let me encourage you to be like that group of Athenians who said to Paul, you know what? I'm not sure that I really believe. I'm still skeptical, but I want to hear more. I want to hear more about what you're talking about. So keep exploring. Keep asking. Don't stop until you find the answer to your deepest longing. If you've already found a relationship with Jesus, and and my hope is, and I know that a lot of us have, if you've already found that relationship with Jesus like Bono talks about, ask him to give you a heart for the people who are still searching. Ask him to give you a heart for your family members, for your friends, for your neighbors, for your coworkers, for whomever it may be. Ask him to give you the same kind of heart that Paul had when he was in Athens, that Bono has as he talks to people about his faith in Jesus. Ask him to use you to help others to find him. Because God wants all of us to know him. He wants all of us to seek after him. He wants all of us to find him. And he's promised that if we seek him, he will reveal himself to us and we will find him. And when we find him, we'll realize that he is ultimately the one who we are constantly looking for because he's our creator. He's the one who provides for all of our needs. He's the one who loves us more than anyone in the universe loves us. He's the one who sacrificed himself for us so that we could have a relationship with him. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this passage in Acts. I thank you for how you just worked in Paul's heart and in his life that he was prepared to speak to the Athenians. He was prepared to understand their culture enough that he could translate your message into language that they could understand. And I thank you for that and for that encouragement and that challenge as well. And I pray for us that as we consider the message, the good news about Jesus, that you would work in our hearts so that we might believe that you're our creator, that you are the provider of life, that you are our heavenly father, that you're the one who sacrificed your son so that we could be restored to a right relationship with you. And as we realize that, as we believe that, as we embrace that, I pray that you give us a heart for the people who around us who are seeking and that you would enable us to share with them in language, metaphors, words that they can understand so that they too can find you and know you and have a relationship with you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.